Coming up today, Matt Reynolds on Russian gas supplies and Grace on why the psychedelics bubble could be about to burst. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Matt Reynolds. Hello. Grace Brown. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Truth Social, the free speech social network launched by former US President Donald Trump, was banned from the Google Play Store because it violates restrictions on physical threats and inciting violence. The move will make it difficult, but not impossible, for Android users to install the app. Snap is planning to lay off approximately 20% of its more than 6,400 employees this week, according to people familiar with the matter. These cuts come after the company's stock price lost nearly 80% of its value since the beginning of this year, and the company said in May it would slow hiring and look for ways to start cutting costs. And in more cheery news, this was the week when the death toll from Pakistan's really severe floods rose to more than 1,100. So some provinces in Pakistan have seen six times the normal summer rainfall and more than a third of the country has been submerged in these floods. Melting glaciers and the heaviest rainfall in three decades have combined to make this one of the country's worst ever floods. And finally, it was the week when NASA called off its planned launch of Artemis 1 due to a reported engine issue, with plans to try again this weekend. The launch was supposed to be the first step of NASA's planned return to the moon, almost 50 years since humans were last on it. We were talking before this and we were surprised, Natasha, that Snap still had 6,400 employees, but maybe that's just us being uh, a bit ignorant of what what, (laughs) these popular apps are up to. (laughs) Yeah, um, it's true. Uh, I, I am constantly surprised. Uh, I guess I'm not in the, neither of us are in the generation of people who use Snapchat, right? Um, maybe only, only Grace and Matt Reynolds might be able to enlighten us as to the young, what the youths are up to. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's never been a thing for me. So I've always been slightly surprised at its existence, which is, <laughs> which is probably, probably very bad of me. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting company. And they announced today, well, it wasn't announced today, it was uh, people familiar with Matter were saying that basically, this is the next step in them trying to turn things around. I think they've pivoted towards like AR and things like that as well, haven't they? And slightly far, far away from yeah. like messaging. And Grace isn't mm. on Snapchat anymore. She's on Be Real, which I know because she keeps putting me in her Be Reels. Where it yeah. Why? Which is like Be totally Real? unacceptable. It's supposed to be like this new authentic social media where you get a notification at a point every single day, different time, and you have to take a picture no matter what you're doing. And for some reason... For the past, like, 10 of them, I've been just sitting next to Amit, and he has to be in every single one of them, and he really doesn't like it. No, it's uh, not. it doesn't mesh with my digital persona, Grace. That's the problem. <laughs> All right, let's move on to what we learned this week. Matt Reynolds. So I learned about a different kind of flood, but this is a flood of rats. So this is something that happens in northern India every few decades. And yeah, it's called a, a rat flood or a, or sometimes a, a rat plague. And what happens is there's a certain 
wild bamboo species that kind of grows in that area across some states in northern India. And sometimes all of this wild bamboo, this certain type of bamboo, flowers at the same time, which basically causes a huge glut of, glut of seeds to fall to the ground. Black rats, it turns out, love these seeds, which causes a massive boom in their population. And when those seeds run out, what happens is the newly increased rat populations that invade crop fields, they gobble up loads of the crops, and in the past it's led to uh, famines. And yeah, this recurs every few decades, and the next rat flood is due in 2025. This is an amazing fact, Matt Reynolds. It's kind of like, I guess, like, kind of like a plague of locusts, where they kind of have an emergence cycle where they emerge every few years. Super interesting. Yeah, it's exactly like that thing in America about um, cicadas and you have this brood X and you have these different generations that emerge every, every 30 years or so. But um, yeah, in this case, it, re- it hinges on this kind of specific species of uh, wild bamboo. So I, I, I wonder, you know, why maybe you can kind of... Clearly it's like endemic and maybe it kind of grows back in those kind of 30-year periods. But it's, um, yeah, it, it's actually like a really, really uh, challenging problem in, in North India. Do they have like names for the rat floods? Like they have storm names here and could they be named after famous rats and mice like Algernon, Basil, <laughs> Remy etc? Yeah I have to say I do not recognise the names of any of those mice. I, I was thinking like Mickey uh, and actually that's it Danger Mouse of course but Danger Mouse's name is just Danger yeah. Mouse. So yeah I mean, yeah, maybe they could. It has, it has a name which I, I can't quite remember which I think just means uh, famine but um, yeah so far uh, proposals to name that a famous, famous mice of, uh, you know, fallen on deaf ears. Maybe you could try. <laughs> yes, perhaps uh, we should acknowledge how serious and, you know, <laughs> difficult this is a situation. <laughs> perhaps not, not one to be made light of by uh, throwing uh, ratatouille references into the mix. But um, thanks, man. That was a really interesting fact. Thank you. Um, Grace, what have you got for us? Um, mine is kind of on theme with my story this week. Um, I learned that in 1964, a squad of British Marines were actually involved in a trial in which they were given LSD or acid um, and asked to engage in a field exercise which simulated counterinsurgent fighting. The whole idea of this trial, like why it was dreamed up, um, it was supposedly to discover chemical agents that were able to incapacitate enemy forces, but with negligible risk of fatal casualty. So I guess maybe... I don't know, just get everyone super high, but like they won't die, I guess was the goal. Um, the trial itself was called Moneybags, which I'd be very interested to know why. Um, but you could actually watch the trial on YouTube. I, for some reason, the Ministry of Defense filmed it. Um, and it's an extremely, extremely entertaining video. They just all slowly descend into giggling and they can't do anything. They all start laughing. Can't, they're literally completely incapacitated. And at one point, a soldier tries to cut down a tree with a spade and he nearly does it he you know he's almost there and at another point uh another one climbs a tree and gets to the very top the 60s must have been just an absolutely incredible time to be a scientist don't you think there was just all sorts of absolutely mad stuff going on by then i feel like academics today could uh could learn a thing or two from their peers from 50 or 60 years ago all right let's move to our first story this week Uh, Natasha. So the economic situation in Europe is pretty grim. In the UK, people have been talking about eating mouldy food and what food is really expired has become a bit of a question mark. There's a cost of living crisis and also there's an energy crisis that is approaching peak problem um, as winter approaches. So people are facing huge, huge fuel bills. Um, So electricity, gas will go through the roof. And this is largely down to Russian gas and more specifically 
a lack of it. Matt, what's been going on? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think any of our listeners in Europe will have, have really struggled to avoid this huge uh, issue of this energy crisis, which... You know, I don't know if everyone remembers, but back in kind of September or winter last year, we were talking about gas prices were at all times high. high. They're about double what they had been previously. And that was because of just a lot of demand um, and basically an inability to kind of you know, fuel these um, or store up these supplies over summer you know, for, for winter. As it turned out, everything got a lot, lot worse with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what does this cause? What, is, what this has caused is these huge disruptions to Russia's supply of gas to Europe. And that's a huge problem because normally, you know, if we take, you know, 2021 or, you know, the years before that as a, as a kind of, you know, base, Russia supplies around 40% of the EU's natural gas. So this is the gas that is burned for energy, that is used in industry, it's used for our central heating. It's not like, you know, obviously Americans called gas, uh, pe- petrol gas, but this is natural gas that's used in all these, you know, different uses. In some countries like Germany, you know, around half of its natural gas comes from Russia. And in fact, some countries like Lithuania are almost completely reliant on Russia for gas. So Russia's supply of gas to Europe is a huge huge deal. And basically what happened is the war in Ukraine exposed some really now pretty obvious problems in this setup. So what essentially happens is that, you know, after Russia invaded Ukraine, the EU put lots and lots of sanctions on Russia, including stopping cash transfers and uh, to some extent stopping payments in rubles. So uh, Russia wanted or generally wants people to pay for its gas in rubles because it basically makes more money on its gas fees from that. Countries refused. And as a response to that, uh, the Russian state-controlled energy firm Gazprom announced it was slashing gas exports through one of its main pipelines to about 20% of capacity. And so the share of Russian gas that is entering Europe has dropped from half of gas coming from Europe to around 15%, which is a huge squeeze on what was already these really, really inflated gas prices. And in fact, this is actually just got worse and got worse. So today, Russia stopped the flow of gas via one of the major Russia-European pipelines, Nord Stream 1. You might also recall that another planned pipeline, Nord Stream 2, has basically been cancelled by the Germans. So that's not going to happen. So Russia said this cancellation, or sorry, this, um, this gap for maintenance was scheduled and always going to be planned. But the German government said it only found out about this shutdown after the Russian state energy company Gazprom posted about it on Telegram. So not only have we got this massive squeeze, but it's actually getting worse yeah i remember when that sort of um, maintenance mode was announced and people were saying well if it does come back online then maybe we'll just suffer a really really horrible shortage um let's just trust that russia's telling the truth that they're going to bring it back online it doesn't really seem like that is actually the case i mean we're in a situation at the moment where germany in, in germany where obviously most of the you know, big pipes are going through from from Russia. They're facing, you know, already cold showers and we're still having quite a warm entry into into autumn. So it, it doesn't bode well. But, but I want to go back to the Ukraine issue because obviously this whole conflict started, the war started in February of this year. And this isn't like news to European leaders and supply chains, right? We knew that we were very heavily reliant in Europe on Russian gas. How is it possible that they weren't able to put anything in place to sort the situation out? And, and, and also, why did they know, knowingly that, 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 that sort of Russia is a problematic neighbour, rely on it so heavily in the first place? Yeah, it's actually kind of quite interesting when you think about this, because I think for us today, it feels like such a stupid idea to have this aggressive, unpredictable neighbour right on your borders who is essentially fund, you know, fundamentally responsible for 
yeah, half of your natural gas supply, you know, for, you know, this crucial resource that underlies so much, you know, uh, you know, your energy and your industry and all these important things. But to understand how we got here, you, you kind of need to go back to like the 1970s, right? So it's the peak of the Cold War. Germany's split into two states. So you have capitalist West Germany that's aligned with NATO and communist East Germany that's, Germany that's aligned with the USSR. And basically what happened in the 70s is some West German politicians and some USSR, Soviet politicians and, and gas executives essentially struck a deal to try and bridge a gap between these two power blocks. And how the deal worked was that West Germany promised to supply the USSR with steel pipes. So Germany had loads of expertise, still does, in making steel pipes. And in exchange, the Soviets decided to extend a gas pipeline beneath the Iron Curtain and into Western Europe, the first time that a communist country was supplying Europe you know, reliably with gas. And that's because the USSR had just discovered loads of oil and gas in Siberia. And you know, the West just needed power and needed energy. This was all part of a movement at the time called Ostpolitik, which was this idea of falling relations between the USSR and West Germany and, and the East and the West more generally. And this idea was that closer economic ties would make conflict between these great powers less likely. You actually see a kind of similar dynamic um, between the US and China. Some people say that you know, economic ties is what stops countries uh, going to war. There's kind of some academic evidence that that might be the case. And at the time, the West German Chancellor, Willy Brandt, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for this whole policy. And what happened, you know, after the USSR collapsed and the EU kind of rose in its place is this dependence just got greater and greater. And this idea was, well, maybe it's not so bad because we have this neighbour, maybe we don't like totally like, we don't totally trust, but we're interdependent and that's what's going to prevent us coming into conflict. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting approach because not to build too much on your history lesson, but we've written um, another article about the sort of the, the reasons why uh, Europe kind of set itself up for this situation in the first place. And, and if you look at the sort of the liberalisation that happened in, 19, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, basically the idea was if we all band together as a block, we're going to get the best energy prices possible, the cheapest energy prices possible. And if we band together and we we create the Nord Streams, um, then we'll be able to ensure supply to everyone. And their the, the idea wasn't necessarily to guarantee supply. It was to guarantee supply at the lowest price possible. So it was like, if we're all in it together, we'll all get a great price, regardless of whether you're really far away or close by, right? So it, we're in this situation now where we don't have any supply. Um, any remnants of gas that might go through Nord Stream would go straight past Germany and to other countries that still need it. And they're just sort of looking as this as this gas passes them by, which is a bizarre situation. And there doesn't seem to be any backup option, right? So the EU, I remember, said that they, they had this goal of getting off of that Russian gas altogether. How are they going to do that? And will they be able to do it in time to make a difference this winter? So there's two answers to that. One, okay, so how are, we going to, how are they going to do that? We'll get to that in a sec. Can they do it in time? The answer is probably no. Like, actually, the reality is, is that getting off Russian gas is a really, really long-term project. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But there are things you can do in the short term that might make this a little bit less painful. But I think the reality, and the economist I was talking to, you, you know, kind of backed this up, is that we probably have several pretty tough winters ahead of us in, in Europe. But So you're totally right that, you know, the European Union... Well, I mean, maybe it didn't see this coming, but you know, in July it said, look, we know we're going to have a really tough winter. We don't think we can, uh, Russian gas is going to be back by the winter. Even if it is back, maybe we don't even want it. So they put together this scheme to voluntarily reduce their ca gas demand by 15% between August 2022 
and March 2023. The reason it starts early is because uh, they also want to reduce demand so they can fill up these gas stores so they can really use it over winter, which is where you need a lot of gas for, for heating. So these measures are voluntary, but the EU Council has warned that maybe they'll become mandatory if gas security reaches, reaches crisis levels. And so you, you, you alluded a little bit to this already, Natasha, but some of the policies that companies have taken include, you know, cities in Germany have switched off public lighting, they've lowered thermostats, they've closed swimming pools. Uh, you know, France has done some stuff around stopping shops from running air conditioning while doors are open. It made a whole bunch of sense, kind of stupid to, you know, just randomly cool the outside environment. Uh, Spain, which to be fair, doesn't actually import much Russian gas, uh, has kind of set an upper limit on how... or a lower limit? It's set a limit on where air conditioning can be set. So basically, don't cool the room uh, too much. But the problem is, is this is kind of like fiddling around the edges of the problem. Actually, there's some good evidence that Germany has done a pretty good job of reducing its power demand and people are responding. But the scope of the reduction we need is pretty huge. And in the EU, homes and vital infrastructure like schools and hospitals are what are known as protected customers. So that means that they actually are kind of legally prohibited from experiencing energy cuts or blackouts. So the government can't say, we're going to you know, say you have a cap on your energy usage. So that's prohibited in the, the EU. So you have to look at other areas. And as it turns out, about a quarter of natural gas in the EU goes to industry. So it's stuff like fertilizer, it's stuff like steel production, uh, thing, you know, glass production, pharmaceuticals, stuff that uses loads and loads of gas, often because you need very high temperatures to smelt metals and things like that. So it probably means that industry is going to have to shoulder a large burden of this gas reduction. And the EU has basically asked companies to switch to other forms of fuel. Maybe you can use hydrogen in some circumstances. Um, and it's, it's asked member states to draw up a list of which businesses should be asked to stop production in the event of sudden gas shortages. So there's this kind of hierarchy of which businesses might pause. So maybe it's car manufacturers, maybe it's fertilizer manufacturers. You've already seen this to some extent. So a big German steelmaker has said that, you know, it can restrict its production to some extent, but it might have to shut down if there is a gas shortage altogether. Chemical firm BASF has already said it will slow down fertilizer um, production in response. And also, I, I mentioned about homes like not being subjected to changes. But, you know, as you said, in the UK, we're looking at energy bills that are like five times what they were, four times what they were. It seems obvious that that's going to cause people to reduce their usage, not because they... Well, just simply just because they can't afford it. So you'd expect that actually home heating will be reduced the painful way, essentially. Yeah, there's a huge knock-on effect with businesses saying they can't afford their energy bills, so they won't be able to stay open, which means that people will lose their jobs, which means that they're going to be at home, which means they can't afford to pay their bills, which means they can't heat their homes, etc., etc. The list goes on and on and on, right? Uh, but but it makes sense to, in a, in a short-term sort of measure, to try to save as much gas as possible in reserve now when it's still good weather, when people don't have necessarily their heating on or maybe their air conditioning on so much now it's cooling down across Europe um, and, and sort of bank it for later on in the winter time. But but for the long run, right, those reserves, it doesn't look like they might even last this winter. It does look like that we might we might be facing across Europe some form of pain, whether it's through blackouts or enforced cuts or, you know, astronomical prices for the gas that we might get. So how does the EU fix this 
in the long term? Short term pain, but will there be long term gain? (laughs) Is there a plan to like wean us off of gas completely from from Russia? Is there is there a backup that they can turn to? So there is a plan. But the bad news is it's short term pain and then medium term pain. And then, like, maybe it's okay in the long run. (laughs) So basically, like you said, actually, there are some good signs, right? So the EU is filling up its gas storage ahead of schedule, right? It won't get to, like, 80% by November the 1st. It's actually pretty much there already, which is really quite positive. Of course, the bad news is it has cost around 10 times more than it would usually cost for it to fill that up. So this has come at a huge price, and we're, we're still, you know, only really starting to reckon with exactly the, you know, the kind of... um economic cost of this and probably we're going to have several winters of the same thing right squeezing um you know trying to you know, ramp up our production or ramp up our storage over summer and then squeezing our use over winter and, and trying to use as little as possible while all this is going on all this kind of short-term preparation all this short-term pain there's this longer term you know huge shift and so the eu has this plan to end its dependence on russian fossil fuels and it's called repower eu it's a really you know, kind of a pretty lame acronym actually but that's kind of part of the course of the eu directives it's, it's a really big scheme it's 210 billion euros and among other things it, it has like a scaling up of renewable electricity generation it's got a scheme to double installed installed solar panel capacity uh doubling rate of heat pump insulation that means that you can um you know rather than having, having gas central heating you can have electricity powered uh central heating and a plan to you know increase the percentage of electricity from Renewables And there's also some stuff around getting industry to replace gas with hydrogen and biomethane and stuff like that. But, you know, it's probably becoming obvious that none of this will happen quickly. And what that means is that, yes, we're ramping up our um, renewables and yes, we're ramping up. We're trying to reduce demand or reduce demand from gas specifically. We're still going to need to get a whole bunch of gas in the meantime. And that essentially means getting gas from elsewhere so maybe we can import it from gulf states in the form of liquid natural gas of course to get that so so basically you can you can bring gas from ship by kind of condensing it and then shipping it to a place rather than um using you know pipelines the problem is is that to do that you need to increase um you know port infrastructure and you really need to kind of build this up and even if we bought up like all the spare liquid natural gas it really would only kind of fill half of the gap you don't really get there with uh, liquid natural gas so what we have to do and what the eu is doing is it's going to different states to say oh Actually, we'd love to buy gas from you. So the EU has negotiated a new deal with Azerbaijan. Um, Italy has announced a deal with Algeria to uh, get gas. I think that there's stuff between Spain and Morocco. So there's always kind of new gas deals. The problem is they're not quick, right? It doesn't t- you can't build a new pipeline uh, you know, tomorrow or for this winter or for next winter. So really, all these things might take five years. So we're, this is a, a problem that's going to be with us for you know, the best part of a decade or the best part of the next decade. There are some pretty terrifying headlines floating around at the moment. Obviously, we've been talking about the EU, Matt. I wanted to ask about how this affects us in the UK, because obviously we've got our own sources of energy and we're perhaps not as reliant on Russian gas specifically as some of the other European countries like Germany might be, but we're still being sort of hammered by these rising prices. Why is that? And is there anything that we can do in the UK to mitigate it in the same way that the EU is trying to? Yeah, I mean, the reason is basically that although the UK does have its own gas in the North Sea, um, and I think it gets around 50% of gas is produced domestically in the UK. I'm not, not 100% sure on that. Um, 
it's not enough. And also the price that the UK pays for North Sea gas is basically determined by the international market. So if gas prices are super squeezed because someone's like turned off the tap for absolutely everyone, it means the value of gas Whoever's producing it, no matter that that's being produced in the North Sea or it's being produced in, you know, you know, wherever, someone else, somewhere else in Europe, that all massively skyrockets. So essentially, although it's true that the UK is somewhat isolated from Russian gas, I think we, we import like a very small amount of Russian gas, I believe. Um, we are completely vulnerable to these uh, price shocks. And that's the thing that is really kind of hitting the UK is that the UK actually uses a lot of gas to produce electricity. It uses a lot of gas to heat its home and it uses gas within industry. And when you have an electricity system that is so pinned around gas, you're basically completely vulnerable to the wholesale price of gas. So, yeah, that, yeah that's the kind of ho- horrible answer, basically. Yeah. I suppose one thing that hasn't really come up in the discourse in the UK is the fact that that's only the case because we've privatised our gas supplies right if the uk had control over its own gas supplies it wouldn't have to be beholden to the sort of global market price yeah that's interesting so that's something that i that i was kind of thinking about as well and obviously i'm not an an economist right so there's probably some like really obvious reason why this that's kind of a silly idea but that seemed to me to be the case but i suppose if you are bp you know the the companies are extracting this gas and then selling it because the the problem is is essentially is a problem of extractors are making all the money right the energy companies actually have to pay the really high bills so it's the extractors that make all the money. Um, if you're saying to BP, you can only sell to the UK, you can only sell at this rate, BP is going to say, what the hell? Like, why would I focus on the UK that has these limits? There's a whole world out there where gas prices are 10 times their usual amount. Why can't I sell them there? So I think that one of the big... Um, issues is you're essentially saying to an industry uh you are having a massive boom time you can't take part in it you have to sell at this rate and i guess that you know is is like anathema to a liberal or capitalist um you know government in particular yeah liberal capitalist but also very very cold for the next six months (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly Um, exactly. yeah wrap up warm yeah it's one thing is that is interesting i think this idea of energy independence kind of is just another reason to switch to renewables right it's just it's going to accelerate that that shift hopefully so hopefully maybe there'll be like a silver lining to this that it will accelerate that shift towards heat pumps and wind farms and and renewables that you control yourself rather than being reliant on imports but there are no subsidies for that like all the subsidies are drying up for those sorts of things that's that's the big problem and what what you notice especially with discourses on twitter is people going i don't i literally don't know how i'm going to afford heating or how i'm going to afford to pay my bills this winter and people go buy yourself some solar panels and we've already we've talked on the podcast about the the upfront cost of solar panels and that is completely unaffordable for a lot of people especially if you don't have a space to put them up right so it feels very much like without government intervention whether it's on price or on you know heavily subsidizing so that people can find alternatives it's going to be so hard for people especially vulnerable people to pay the bills this winter I think we talked in the past on the podcast about the interventions that are happening in places like Italy, where the government is aggressively funding home improvements. And obviously there's movements like Insulate Britain um, over here that are trying to press the government to do something, anything to, to try and tackle this problem. It's a really interesting story. And like we, we obviously have a lot of listeners from all around the world. So I'd be really interested if you're in Europe, like what steps is your government taking to try and address this? What steps have you taken personally to try and address this before kind of winter kicks in? Do you let us know podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week is about psychedelics. There has been something of a renaissance around them in recent years with academic interests and medical studies on what was once a fringe topic. 
but some think the bubble is about to burst and that scientists themselves should be the ones who pop it. Can you tell us more, Grace? Yes, I'm sure that many of our listeners know that psychedelics in the past few years are having a bit of a moment. Um, You know, they were previously outlawed since the 60s and the 70s during the war on drugs. And only recently scientists have been able to start researching them again, Um, mostly looking at them as a potential new way of treating mental illness, which obviously is something that's desperately needed. Um, And yeah, the field has exploded and of course, industry has followed closely behind their, you know, new startups every single day um, and just a ton of money going into it at the moment. And interestingly enough, there's a new paper that's coming out written by psychedelic researchers themselves that are kind of um, calling time on this bubble. They think it's getting a little bit too big, putting the cart before the horse um, and they're kind of arguing that yeah, scientists are the ones that should be are the ones who should pop it. Um, and you know, big disclaimer: these are like I said, psychedelic researchers. They're not naysayers. They're not skeptics. Um, they're the ones who want this research to go well. And the the way to do that is to tread really, really carefully, for fear that you know if this does go wrong, that psychedelics could end up back where they are started. You know, treated with deep suspicion, if not completely outlawed again. So the paper argues that the psychedelics are in something called a hype cycle, which is a term that maybe is familiar to wide readers and people who kind of write about and read about emerging technologies. But can you explain a bit more about what you mean by this hype cycle, Grace? Yeah, so to trace psychedelics potential future, they use this model called the Gartner hype cycle, which um, is traditionally used to kind of characterize trend cycles of every new technology like, you know, VR or 4D printing. Um, the pattern has kind of gone something like this. So, you know, for decades, psychedelics were forbidden um, and only in recent years they've re-emerged from you know previously just kind of fringe underground communities who are big advocates of them and now they've gone into labs um, and being you know posited as this big revolutionary treatment for mental illness um, and that has really you know just continued to grow in 2018 the FDA granted psilocybin breakthrough therapy status for depression which means that they're giving it the best possible shot of making it to approval and this became a huge story in the media, Wired included, has covered it a lot. Um, and like I said before, startups sprung up. Um, there's been this kind of obsessive patenting of psychedelic compounds. Um, and But what's really begun as a kind of, you know, welcome glimmer of hope um, amongst, you know, just this really big crisis um, with mental health has kind of just morphed into actual misinformation these these um scientists are argue, arguing in the paper you know claims have begun to crop up that um psychedelics can cure mental illness that they can solve massive social problems and that one day we'll all be living in this kind of psychedelic utopia where there's no war no poverty um and you know maybe that's true probably not but the thing is, and what they're saying is there's no evidence to show that right now. <laughs> Probably not. I like that. <laughs> I think this is a pattern that we see repeated in a, a, lot, a lot of industries, a lot of uh, psychological or neurochemical industries in particular, a lot of brain scanning technologies kind of go through this pattern of someone discovers something in a lab or, you know, does some academic research on something that's been around for thousands of years. And then suddenly there's this boom of companies trying to exploit it and make money out of it. But the research itself is actually still really preliminary. Like it's not as if there's been massive trials and treatments going on that are really disrupting all the methods in any kind of tangible way yet. Yeah, I mean, you look at the actual hard data that's out there and it's still 
very, very early days. And, you know, it definitely, a lot of it shows a ton of promise, but, you know, the way that science works, it's nowhere near enough to actually say with any kind of confidence that this is going to be some kind of revolutionary treatment. You know, the trials so far have been pretty small, um, definitely don't support any claims of some cure. Um, the biggest evidence that we can point to um, was a study that, you know, listeners might have heard about. It, it was led by Robin Carhart-Harris, who was at Imperial College London. And they looked at um, psilocybin, which is the um, psychedelic comp- uh, component of magic mushrooms. Um, and they used it again, um, in comparison with a standard antidepressant. Um, and it did perform better than the antidepressant, but only marginally. Um, so this, this is kind of the biggest, most robust evidence that we have. And it only shows that psychedelics are a little bit better than antidepressants. So, I mean, I wouldn't personally call that revolutionary. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, the, there was a ton of coverage around that study with the kind of main through line being psychedelics are better than antidepressants, which yes, true. Um, but it kind of got it out of control. And I actually spoke with um, a researcher who was a paper, an author on that paper and a clinical lead for the trial. And she actually has become really outspoken about how much she regrets how just um, unbridled enthusiasm she showed for psychedelics at the time. Like she really, she was working as a psychologist, you know, had been doing talking therapy for years. Many of her patients were not improving at all. And then she um, participated in this trial and saw firsthand, you know, how how much better people were doing with psychedelics. Um, So obviously she was super excited, but I think she kind of feels now that she perhaps wasn't as reserved as she should have been you know she talked about how six months later she met the patients again and about half of them had actually their depression had returned to the same way it was before um so now she's really outspoken about you know she's still really excited about psychedelics but um the research is still really preliminary and that we need to be really careful about how we communicate it because you know at the end of the day most of these psychedelics are really going to help people who have severe mental illness and you can imagine you know you this is your last last ditch effort to treat your severe depression and it doesn't work for you how disappointing that must be Mm. it's kind of an age-old story in the way in that academic and academia is a, a world of nuance and you know you know hedging your bets and you know not never making equivocal unequivocal statements unless you absolutely can avoid it and then the world of like startups and ted talks and all this you kind of have to jettison all that nuance in order to get your point across and you know really hammer home your message or get someone to download your app or whatever and nuance is sort of the enemy of academia in some way so this is like a really really old conflict that we see in a lot of, of different spaces but i mean beyond the kind of disappointing results that we saw in studies recently there's also been other dangers to the hype around this sort of research right yeah exactly i think like you said hype is the it's the complete enemy of nuance um and i think a a common theme that's kind of pervaded this is that scientists have been you know trying for so long to get governments to take psychedelics seriously as a potential treatment you know not let you know its previous history influence how we view them today um but that's kind of meant that they have been really reticent to talk about any of the downsides. Um, you know, number one, psychedelics are overwhelmingly safe. They are pretty safe for the most part, but they're not safe for everyone. There is some evidence to show that, you know, 
it could trigger a psychotic episode for a very, very small amount of people. So that's not something, you know, to completely forget about. Um, and the, one of the researchers said to me that, you know, an adverse event is going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And we need to be able to com- communicate that to people so that when it does happen, people don't immediately change their mind and say, ha, I knew it, psychedelics were bad all along. Um, and aside from that, there are some other darker stuff going on in the field right now that some scientists have been really poor at addressing. Um, namely, um, there have been some cases of sexual abuse that have been taking place in psychedelic therapy clinical trials. Um, in 2015, a woman named Megan Busan was taking part in a trial testing MDMA as a treatment for PTSD um, as part of a clinical trial hosted by this psychedelic research nonprofit called Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. And uh, she was actually sexually assaulted during that trial. And MAPS were really, really bad at addressing it. And you know, the psychedelics are hold this kind of special vulnerability because when you are on psychedelics, um, you it's, it's like research has shown that you know they increase suggestibility and sexual feelings, and so that just means that when you're undergoing psychedelic assisted therapy, it re- it's going to require a lot of checking, a lot of safeguarding, and if scientists aren't openly addressing and safeguarding against this, then things could actually get really really bad i guess part of the problem is that a lot of scientists working in this field kind of have skin in the game right they've been advocating it for a number of years and i guess they you know although i'm not casting doubt on their impartiality and and, and the work they're doing i guess you know when they talk to the media or when they talked to the media about it in the past maybe they weren't you know talking about it in the most couched terms they were they were hyping it up um and that kind of that's kind of what the authors of this paper say as well. They say it's not really the media and the industry that have, that have just been overhyping psychedelics. It's also been the scientists themselves, some of them that are just as guilty. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of been like an overcorrection. Um, and yeah, one, one uh, person I spoke to who's a... Um, he is a psychiatry re- researcher at Yale. He compared it to the movie Scream. You know, the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> um, there is definitely they everyone i spoke to has said that there are some people in this field who maybe are prone to overhyping their results or at least um you know again yeah not talking about their results with a ton of nuance um and i think when it comes to something as like cool and interesting and sexy as psychedelics like it's really easy for the media to latch onto certain narratives and kind of yeah forget all the nuance um and one thing that's kind of interesting is that some people in the field aren't particularly receptive to criticism from fellow scientists. We saw this, a really good example of this in um, April of this year when a paper in Nature Medicine, also led by Robin Carhart-Harris, um, came out and looked at how it was trying to figure out how psilocybin actually works to treat depression because, uh, funnily enough, we actually don't know why it works. Um, they posited this theory that maybe it was happening by boosting connections between different parts of the brain, um, which maybe, you know, is a plausible theory. But the paper itself, some scientists pointed out, had a few red flags or like some holes in the paper. Um, and so this researcher at Yale that I spoke to, um, him and two other concerned scientists submitted a letter to the editor of the journal in which they pointed out some of these holes. You know, there was outcome inconsistencies and some odd omissions and statistical flimsiness. Um, you know, all stuff that's like in the scientific weeds, but, you know, really, really important for rigorous research. Their letter was rejected, so they uploaded it to a preprint server. Um, and 
In response, Carhart Harris and two other co-authors from the paper published their rebuttal to the rebuttal. Um, and it was a really, really odd one. They kind of uh, insinuated that it was they had written that response on the basis of some personal motivation. And it kind of just kicked off this kind of dirty fight on Twitter between a bunch of psychedelic researchers. Um, it led to Robin Carhart Harris blocking um, that yeah researcher on Twitter. Um, and it kind of, I guess, was discouraging for people in the field that, you know, ev- everyone's fighting the same fight. Everyone has the same end goal. But if if you're not open to peer review, which is literally the essential process of, of the scientific method, then, you know, um, it's not helping anybody. Um, There's a another kind of angle to this as well, which is that a lot of the research is being funded by, or at least supported by companies that are operating in the space, which again, kind of said, um, you know, dirt muddies up the water over it, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's been really interesting, I think, um, because even from my perspective as a science journalist, if I were to re- uh, interview someone um, on you know how effective an antidepressant was, if this person was on the board or had received fees from you know Pfizer or something or some company that sold antidepressants, like that would be a big conflict of interest. You know, if you just think about it in basic terms, like if someone's receiving money, if they have a financial incentive to pipe up results, like would you trust that person? But that's kind of become a pervasive problem in the psychedelics field like many of the researchers themselves are on the board or receive consulting fees from the psychedelic companies that have started to pop up um even some of them themselves have you know um created their own startups um so yeah like you said it really does muddy the waters um and it it kind of yeah, it's making it difficult to separate the hype out because these people are then, you know, going to the media and giving interviews. And it's kind of a question of how much you can trust what they're saying if they have enough financial incentive to hype up the results. I really like the story because it is such a, and I've touched on this already in some of my questions, but it's such a microcosm of so many problems, not just within this field of research, but across academia as a whole. And that's why I think it's such a fascinating, fascinating story. So, Grace, what do you think will happen with psychedelics specifically? How will the rest of this, you know, hype cycle play out and what will it mean for research in this area? Yeah, so the the researchers um, of this paper think that we're kind of cresting, you know, the top of the hype cycle right now and that the bubble is about to burst. Um, other people I spoke to weren't quite so sure that we're reaching the top yet. They think it could get even bigger before it bursts. Um, but they're hoping that... Um, you know, it'll it'll go something like this. The bubble will burst. Um, there'll be some backlash. You know, skeptics will be like, "Ha, I knew it." Um, and maybe the VC funding will begin to drop. But they're kind of um hopeful that will happen because it means that you know all of the hype will disappear and that the psychedelic researchers will be able to you know go back to their labs and just do all the boring but really really necessary rigorous research to actually show that. Um, psychedelics do hold promise um, you know to treat mental illness um, because at the end of the day yeah I mean it is the scientific process like that's what we need for it actually to work um, I guess maybe something that could also happen though if this goes badly and what this is why they're calling for scientists to be the ones to pop the, bub- the bubble is if it does if it is the case that you know a massive adverse event happens or things start to get out of control that it could actually end up going back to a place where there's policy blowback and psychedelics become outlawed or government become really suspicious of them. And I think that's what, that's, nobody wants that, I think. 
I think they're just kind of hoping that people will start to find psychedelics boring. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's a really, really fascinating story. There's loads more detail in Grace's piece, which will be going up on wired.com very soon. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, and that's about all we've got time for this week. Do let us know if you've got any thoughts or feedback at podcast.wired.co.uk and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.